choir. You'll open your Bibles to me with me uh, today. We're going to be reading Mark chapter 6. It's on page 974 in your pew Bibles. We're going to be reading pages or verses 14 through 29. Kind of disturbing account, but it's uh, pretty important for us to examine this. Starting with verse 14. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. And others said, he is Elijah. And still others claimed he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given the orders to have John arrested and had him bound and put in prison. He did this because Herodias, his brother's Philip's wife, whom he had married, for John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I will give to you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What should I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried in to give the king with this request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So immediately he sent for an executioner with the orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is the word of God. May we have the ears to hear it. May God's blessing be added to it. Have you ever played the game Bigger and Better? Has anybody ever heard of this? Maybe you call it something different, but you start with a paper clip. And you go around and you annoy your neighbors. Basically, you knock on their door and you say, I, I have a paper clip. And they go, okay. And they say, well, can I trade it to you for something a little bit bigger and a little bit better? Does this sound familiar? Has anybody done that? I want to see some hands. Anybody ever done this? All right, this is completely new for all of you. We used to do this all the time when I was a kid in youth group and then when I grew up in our youth group too. It's actually really fun because... You go to that first house, you trade in that paper clip, usually you get like a pen. You go, okay, I get a pen. And then you go to the next house, can I trade this in for something a little bit bigger and a little bit better? And if they're nice, they usually like dig around, they go, here, have some junk. And you eventually gradually trade up to some pretty impressive things. And you could do this over the course of an hour or two hours. We used to do a competition with our youth group to see who could come back with the biggest and best thing. Now, there was a guy, a, a Canadian, named Kyle McDonald, 
And he heard about this, and in 2005, he started with a red paperclip. And maybe you heard this story. He started with a red paperclip over the course of a year, looked to people who would trade for something a little bit bigger and better. And over the course of the year, over 14 trades, he traded, some of the things he traded up to were to a doorknob, uh, to a generator, a Honda generator. So that's pretty good. Then to a snowmobile, then to a role in a feature film. And finally, he traded that role in a feature film for a two-story house. He started with a paperclip, a little bit bigger, a little bit better, over the course of a year, got a house. And that actually became the focus of a documentary. He became pretty famous for that game. Now, imagine if somebody came up to Kyle at the beginning of that year, and he had that paperclip. And the first trade, a guy actually came up to him and said, Kyle, I will trade you a two-story house in Saskatchewan for that paperclip. And Kyle said, no, I like this paperclip. I want to keep this paperclip. This is the best paperclip in the world, and there's no way I would ever want to trade it for something as grand and wonderful as a house. He'd be bonkers, right? Well, I mean, Saskatchewan, but still, he'd be kind of crazy to not take a house. Yet that's the sort of situation we get into when millions of us, billions of people, look at the sin, look at the state of their life, Look at something as small and paltry as a paperclip and go, no, I want to keep that instead of trading it in for something bigger and better. Today we're going to see this kind of really sad and kind of very tragic tale of a king, a man who really did have everything he ever wanted, was offered to trade the single worst possession in his life for something a lot bigger and a lot better, and he turned it down. So we're going to look here at Mark 6 to see this paperclip failure in action. Now, there are only two places in the gospel, Mark, only two places where the author turns his focus away from Jesus to somewhere else. And both of these places are toward John the Baptist. And this is the second account here. As we begin this account, Mark does that kind of interesting thing that sometimes you see in movies and TV where he starts with the end. He starts with, like, something weird that's happened. Actually, here's something tragic that's happened. And then he works his way back in the story. Sometimes TV uh, shows do this to kind of really grab your attention at the beginning. Like, how did our heroes get in this weird situation? And then they're like, three days earlier, and then they work, work your way back here. And here in today's account, we start with kind of a, a crazy tale of John the Baptist, this guy we knew at the beginning of the gospel, of the, the herald of Jesus the forerunner announcing the coming of the Messiah, has been murdered. He's been beheaded. And that Herod did it. On his command, had this man beheaded. Not only have we learned this at the beginning of the account, but we learned that Herod is absolutely racked with guilt. He's sitting there, hearing all these rumors. Actually, this is the only really the, a place in this account where it addresses Jesus. He's hearing these rumors of Jesus the rise of Jesus' popularity and his fame. And everybody's really speculating around that key question of Mark, who is Jesus, right? That's the key question. Never forget that. Who is Jesus? So all the people are saying, well, maybe, maybe he's a prophet, maybe he's Elijah, you know, maybe he's, he's this guy or that guy. And Herod has this deep, dark thought. Maybe it's John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is back from the dead, and he wants revenge. Herod's not great on the timeline, by the way. You should have known that, you know, Jesus is kind of the same age. But anyways, here we go. So 
Herod Antipas, let's bring you back up to speed on who this guy is. Remember that he's not the King Herod of the, of the Christmas story. That King Herod died in 4 BC, or four, yeah, around 4 AD. And his sons, his three sons took over, his four sons took over the country. And Herod Antipas was the guy who got the region of Galilee and Perea. So it was Herod, King Herod Antipas. And he actually reigned there for about 43 years. Pretty much nobody, none of the Jews liked King Herod Antipas. King, um, Herod Antipas liked to fashion himself as king, but remember, who was really in charge of Israel? It was the Romans. The Romans were really in charge. Usually they put governors over certain areas, but in, in Israel, to kind of keep everybody happy, they created some vassal kings. And so they were pleased to let people like Herod Antipas rule and reign over there. So the Jews never forgot that this guy worked for the enemy. And not only did he work for the enemy, but King Herod Antipas was a Samaritan. And you remember from the Good Samaritan, Jews and Samaritans are like oil and water. They don't get along too well together. And we can get into that at another point. Herod Antipas was a very cruel man, a very cunning man. He was always out to further his political career. And we'll see that in the future when we get to Jesus' execution. Herod Antipas shows up there again. Antipas trying to overcome the, the public relations disaster that his presence caused among the people actually paid for the furtherance of the construction of the third temple in Jerusalem. And he hoped that that would make all the Jews love him, which didn't work in the least. But God always sees the true heart of man. Never forget that. And the heart of Herod Antipas was completely given over to sin. Here we see him haunted by the guilt of his actions, the guilt of what he's done. What he's done is perhaps one of the most damning things a person could have ever done in the Bible. He has had a holy prophet of the Lord Almighty put to death. I mean, really, if you want to fast-track your way right to hell, that is an excellent way of doing it, of taking a man you know to be a spokesman of God Almighty and having him killed. And even though Herod is, he's a Sadducee also. He's a Sadducee, and the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. Here, what is, what is he actually believing in? He believes that this is John the Baptist resurrected. That John the Baptist is back. He's so consumed by guilt, maybe he's not, he's not sleeping at night. He's jumping at shadows, and he thinks that this is it. John the Baptist is back. He's more powerful than ever. When you have guilt in your life, you may tie yourself in knots to get around it. You may rationalize your sin. You may try to think, well, you know, other people do this too, so my sin isn't that great. And there's a lot of shifting of the blame in order to grapple with that guilt and to come to terms with it. You weren't really at fault for pit- hitting that parked car, were you? Right? It's that other person who dared park that car in such a hittable location. How dare they? I mean, I just had this talk with my kids this morning. They get, in, they get into a fight. And it's always the other person's fault, even though they ended up hitting that other person. You know? No, but they made me do it. They, they made you sin. So we have that, that, that transference of guilt. That's a way that we deal with that. When talking with atheists, R.C. Sproul would often ask them this question. He had a great question. He, said, he would talk with them, not, not really trying to, put them on the spot, but he would say, what do you do with your guilt? And he said, every time he asked that question, no one of them, 
even if they denied who Jesus was, denied that God existed, not one of them said, I don't have guilt. All of them had guilt, and all of them struggled with it, even if they wouldn't acknowledge the person against whom they were guilty. He said, guilt consumes our lives as sinners. It's at the core, it's one of the worst consequences of sin, and we deal with that. It cramps our stomach, doesn't it? We ever feel guilty? Think about a time you've really felt guilty about something you've done. You just have that sour feeling in the pit of your stomach. You don't sleep well at night. It consumes everything in your life. And you, the only true remedy for this, really, is to repent. It's to get it out there. To go against the person you've sinned and, and to confess that sin. And then to go to God and confess that sin to God. Yes, you're going to be getting that sin out in the open. And that might have consequences. And that's something of what, what keeps us back from dealing with this guilt sometimes. So we go, well, if I confess that sin, somebody might think less of me. I might have to actually face the music. There might be some serious consequences for what I did. But I'll tell you what, you'll always be better off afterwards than you were before. God always, always knows what's going on in your heart. He's just always encouraging you to get it out there and to dump that guilt, to trade it up, trade that guilt up for the relief of forgiveness. Peter, I love this verse, Peter in Acts 3, when he was preaching to the crowds later on, if anybody knew anything about guilt, by the way, it was Peter, Peter who denied Jesus at the cross, spent that whole weekend of Jesus in the tomb feeling consumed with guilt. And when he was preaching later to the crowds in Acts 3, he said this, he said, repent then and turn to God, so, one, that your sins may be wiped out, a very good thing, but also this, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. That's the relief we're talking about. Not just getting your, your sins wiped off the blotter, but God actually coming in after wiping that sin away and saying, I want to give you refreshing. I want to give you relief. I want you to take that deep sigh and be able to sleep at night, knowing that you got this sin out in the open. And the only way you can do that is by repenting. And of course, that is something King Herod Antipas refused to do. So speaking of things that stress us out, can we talk about the dashboard of our car for a moment? One of the most stressful things is when a light comes on that dashboard. And we, we look at, and we look at uh, there's never good news, never a lot light that comes on saying, hey, Justin, you're doing good in life. Your car is exceedingly well. If a light comes on, it's always telling us, like, hey, you have a flat tire. Hey, your gas tank's really low. Hey, you have low oil. It's one of my favorite gags from The Simpsons. It's when Homer Simpson got into a car with one of his friends, and he started up the car, and they said, hey, hey, Homer, your check engine light's on. He goes, whoops, guess the tape fell off. And he puts this little square patch of tape right over, because if he doesn't see it, he's not warned of it, and it doesn't exist, right? I always thought that was, that was so human, and I love that. So as Mark kind of rewinds the clock on the story, he starts with the ending of it, and he goes back to the beginning of it. We see how this situation happened, which all started when John the Baptist was giving a warning, was being a warning light to King Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas had flat out broke two major Old Testament laws when he married his, his uh, brother's wife. He committed a, adultery, and he got married to his brother's wife. Two things that were expressly forbidden in the Old Testament law. And here John the Baptist is coming up to him and saying, 
listen, Herod, you're the king of this area. You're, you're the leader. You're the person everybody should be looking up to, and you're committing such flagrant sins. You need to turn away from that. He was being a warning light to King Herod Antipas. And the thing is, you get a sense in this passage, if Herod Antipas had been by himself, he might have even listened. Because in verse 20 here, it makes it very clear that Herod Antipas has a healthy respect for John. He is attracted to what John is preaching. He respects him. He he acknowledges that John is a righteous man. And so if if it was just him, he might have listened. He might have turned away. But it's not. Because of this adulterous relationship that Herod Antipas had invited into his life turned out to be a very abusive one for him. One where there was a power struggle within his own new marriage. It's somebody who was looking out for her own interests instead of her husband's. And so Herod, Herod, Herodias, I love the, the confusion here. We've got Herod Antipas and Herodias. And Herodias is the wife, and she nurses a grudge against John. She doesn't want somebody pointing out to her that she's committing a sin. She's, got in, she's worked her way up to a position of power. She's the, the wife of the king. She doesn't want to lose that. So she nurses this grudge. She looks for an opportunity to really squash John and get that message rubbed out good. Sin does not operate independently in our lives. We invite one sin into our life, it will cascade. It will start, start inviting in more and more sin, so that as we're covering up one sin, we're committing another sin. As we nurse one sin, it opens the door for more sins in our life. And as Herod commits adultery, that opens up more sins in his life. So now he's jailed John, that he is he's, uh, in this abusive relationship that is not glorifying God in the least. Sin always takes us farther than we want to go. Sin always keeps you longer than you want to stay. And sin always costs you more than you want to pay, which is why we need to trade that in before it's too late. In Matthew, Jesus told the crowd after John had died, he said, John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they believed him. But even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. What happens if I ignore the low oil warning in my car? What happens if I ignore the the check engine light or the gas tank warning? Sooner or later, I'm going to have a very expensive lawn ornament that's good for nothing else. Sooner or later, sin will take us to a place where it's just too late. Something really bad will happen. And what John warns us of, what Jesus warns us of, is we need to get off this path. We need to trade in sin before it's too late. We need to get, be aware of unchecked sin and the danger that causes in our life. And as long, the bad news is, as long as we're on this planet, even as Christians, we have that danger of unchecked sin in our life. In fact, sometimes as Christians, we actually justify ourselves by saying we're already forgiven, so we have a license to sin. I've heard this. This isn't just like a funny example. I've literally heard people say that, that because we're saved, we can sin. That's not how it is. One of the most important prayers we can pray to God is for God to expose in our life to us the unchecked sin that's going on. For God to make us not inured 
to the sin that's going on in our life, but to make that sin painful to us, to make it uncomfortable to us, so that we wake up and we go, God, I can't take another second of this. I need to repent of it. I need to get it off my chest. We don't need to be growing comfortable with our sin and chummy with it. The thing is, I, I almost never need to tell you what your sin is. I almost never need to go up to you and say, Dave, we need to talk about your gambling addiction. Because, I'm, I'm sorry, you don't actually have one. But the thing is, you know, right now, sitting there, you know what your sin is. You know what unchecked sin is going on in your life. You don't need me to tell you that. You already know it. You even know what you should be doing. The problem is you want to hold on to it. It's either you've grown too comfortable with it, or that sin is, it gives you this dark satisfaction, a dark delight. Or maybe you feel like it's just been going on so long that you, know, you might as well just keep rolling with it. But we hear the truth as Herod heard it from John, and we know, we, we know what we should do. And that truth is attractive to us. The idea of getting past our sin is attractive to us, of having relief, of having that, that, uh, uh, the Lord come in and refresh our lives. That's attractive to us. But we have to make a choice. And here we see Herod, who's attracted to the truth, who knows what the sin is in his life, who's had somebody tell him to his face, Herod, this is what you're doing is wrong. And Herod inches toward there and then shies away from taking that step to repentance. We can be better. We can pray to God and ask God to break, help us break that pattern. And I hope that we do that when we have that prayer of confession in the morning. Every time we start that at the beginning of the service, I hope that we're praying, God, I'm struggling with this. Help me. You can be the one to break this pattern and put me on a better path. But repenting, of course, isn't what happens in this passage. And this tale barrels toward a very tragic and ugly end. And that takes place at this party that's thrown by Herod for all of his followers, all the people he wanted to curry favor with and to make them impressed with him. There's absolutely nothing in this party, by the way, if you read this passage, nothing in this party that pleases God. There's nothing here that's, that's good and virtuous. But rather, this event is designed to please people, to please all of the people Herod wanted to influence. And as they're partying, we get all the, the sordid details here. We see twisted relationships, murder, trickery, divorce, manipulation, excessive partying, prideful hearts, even hints of incest and unstable relationships. That's, that's all these things that are just swirling about in this party. Herod right here is as deep into a well of sin as a person could possibly be. With the only voice, the irony here is the only voice of truth and righteousness and of God is chained up in his dungeon. Whereas nowhere near that room that he's in right then. So is it any surprise then that sin finally springs its trap? See, sin does that. We go into sin and a little at a time we think it's not going to hurt us until one day sin comes down and it clenches us really hard. And the jaws of the trap slam shut on Herod Antipas. His stepdaughter, Salome, is dancing, and it's insinuated here that he finds her appealing and attractive. And he decides, in, in that moment of being pleased by her dance, that he's going to grant her a wish, and he makes a very foolish vow here. And Salome goes to her mom, Herodias, 
who sees her opportunity and she takes it and says, use this opportunity. Ask for John the Baptist's head on a platter. And when the jaws of that trap slam shut, King Herod Antipas has a horrible decision to make. He has to choose between pleasing people and pleasing God. The famous opera singer Pavarotti, you probably heard of him. My wife loves listening to him sing. He said when he grew up, I don't know if he knew this, he was actually training to become a teacher. In addition to being a singer, he went to school and trained to become a teacher. And When he graduated with that degree in teaching, he asked his father, he said, what, what should I do? Should I, should I sing? Should I teach? What, what should I do with all this? And his father said, son, you try to sit on two chairs, you're going to fall right through them. You have to choose one or the other. And Pavarotti said at that point he chose singing, and he spent the rest of his life devoted to developing his craft and his voice talent. And I don't think he, he uh, re- resented that decision. And up to this point in the story, we see that Herod is kind of trying to sit on two chairs here. He's, on one hand, he's, he's very comfortable with his sin. He's very comfortable with his position of power, with pleasing people. But at the same time, we get that hint that he wants to please God, that at least he, he wants to, to edge in the direction of righteousness, that he really doesn't resent John, even though John called him out on his sin. He doesn't resent him. He's attracted to the words this man's saying. He's attracted to the truth because, really, out of all the people who swirl around Herod Antipas, only John the Baptist is the one who has the nerve to tell him the truth of God, which is, of course, what a prophet does. So he's trying to sit on two chairs up to this point. And when he has to make this decision, he finally shifts over firmly into one chair. And that chair is not the chair of God. And even though the passage says he's exceedingly sorry, he has regret almost from the second he makes this decision. He goes through with it. He orders the murder of John the Baptist. Now, from start to finish, the ministry of John the Baptist was only about one year long. I don't know. I never realized that. It's only about a year long from the time he wandered out of the desert, called people to repentance, and was beheaded. One year. Yet in that one year, even though he never performed a single miracle, and he never got in a famous last word as executioner's sword came down, His legacy remains firm. Hebrews chapter 11 says, By faith he speaks even though he is dead. Now today I had to give you a history lesson on Herod Antipas because just about nobody knows who he is today. People know who John the Baptist is because he lived by faith. He sat in the chair of God's righteousness his entire life. His entire life was devoted to sharing the message of God. And Jesus picks up that message, and he runs with it. Now, hypothetical situation here, but let me ask you this question. What if, in that moment, during that party, that woman came up to Herod and said, I want the head of John the Baptist. And and Herod looked at that and said, no, no, that's too far. I will not do that. What if Herod Antipas had turned his life at that moment to a life of righteousness? What if he had made that choice? Said, you know what, guys? I'm tired of trying to please you. You can't please people all the time. 
And if I'm going to spend the rest of my life trying to please somebody, it's going to be God. That's the person I really want to please. What if he had made that decision? What if he had confessed his sin and devoted his life to the Lord? The the thing is, we don't have to imagine what would happen because Psalm 103 actually tells us what would have happened. It tells us that God has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. Isn't that a great verse? We don't get the punishment we really deserve. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his mercy he shows toward those who fear him. For as far as the east is from the west, so far as he has as he's removed his transgressions from us. That is our Lord. He doesn't treat you the way you should deserve. Instead, he treats you with mercy. Those who fear the Lord, by the way, not everybody, but those who fear the Lord, those who turn, those who repent. When your focus of your life is upon pleasing people, you will rarely please God. Let me tell you, that's always a temptation. Every step of our life, in our home, in our workplace, even in the church, we have that temptation to please people. And we want to because that's the easier path. When, when Gene's happier with me, my life is easier. When, when I make a decision that I know to be right, but it's a wrong, something that's going to upset other people, it's going to make my life harder. But if I keep my eyes on God, if you keep your eyes on God and you make those decisions, that I'm going to first and foremost please God. You know what? First of all, you end up pleasing God. And that is a wonderful thing. But second thing, people end up respecting you. And going, you know what? I might not like that decision you just made, but I respect you because I know you're always trying to do the right thing by God. So I'm going to, I'm going to cut you some slack. I'm going to step out of your way. I'm going to support you and love you and encourage you. I have some people in my life, I don't always respect the decisions they make. I, I, some people have made decisions that have made my life harder, but I know that they're godly people. And so I love them, and I respect them. John the Baptist always had his eyes on the Lord, always. I think it's one of the most difficult decisions in our life as Christians because we're still so attached to our old sinful life that we do want to please people because that's what sin does. We want to please people because it makes our lives better, our lives easier. I don't want to fall into the trap of falling between those chairs in my life. That's one of my daily prayers and one of my daily struggles is that, God, I want to be firmly in your chair. And some days I don't do a great job about that. Some days I do want to please people. Some days I do want to please myself. But I hope day by day the Holy Spirit works in my life and works in your life and brings us closer to the point where we're just delighted to please God. It's not a struggle anymore. We wake up excited because today is the day we get to serve the Lord Almighty and we get to do things that please Him and we get to do His good work that will not echo in our lives but will echo in eternity that we're storing up those treasures in heaven. Mark, in this passage, with King Herod Antipas, gives us a very sober reminder of how sin causes fear and guilt and remorse and denial in our lives. And none of that makes for a happy person. King Herod Antipas, I don't think we're going to see him in glory. I don't think there's any chance of that. I don't think he, he, he looks back on his life and he's proud of the decisions he made. But you still have a chance. You can still make a choice to turn away from your sin and toward, turn toward God. Trade in that sin for a win. That's my prayer for you today.
Dear Heavenly Father, repenting isn't just saying we're sorry. Repenting is acknowledging what we've done and turning toward you and saying, Lord, help us. Lord, we need help. We need help because we know how deep sin has its hooks in our lives. But Lord, we know that you are faithful to helping us overcome these sins, overcoming our temptation, to be becoming more Christ-like every day. And Lord, thank you so much that you have forgiven us, that you have washed away our sins and washed us clean and given us that relief and encouragement and refreshment. And Lord, I just pray for the people here of Knox today. Lord, help us not to become callous toward our own sin and become accustomed to it. But Lord, help us to become just so, so excited to turn toward you that we just don't hold on to that sin any longer. And all God's people said, Amen. Did you see the benediction? To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. May we glorify God with our lives and our words and our deeds. In your name, amen. Go in peace.